Our text is going to be verses 5 through 9 of Ephesians 6, and this is God's holy word. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Will you pray with me? Father, help us now to surrender to you, to bow the knee that we might follow you. As we sang, wherever you lead, that we might go there, that we might be faithful to you and your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated. I want to read to you a quote from a book about Guinness. And no, I'm not meaning the Guinness Book of World Records. Although, a little known fact, it is the Guinness Brewery that originally published the Guinness Book of World Records. That's true. They, they thought people needed facts to argue about. I, I'm not making any of that up, by the way. That's really true. But I am talking about a book that details the history of the world-famous dark porter originally brewed in Dublin, Ireland. If this is the first ever Guinness sermon illustration you've ever heard, then just mark that down. But what I want you to see is not about what they make. It's about the company, the employer and employee relationship. Here's the quote. It said, quote, In the minds of most of the people in the world, Guinness is beer, and that's all there is to the story. But this is far from true. The quote goes on to say, Guinness the beer is magnificent. Yes, but it's the Guinness culture that for nearly two centuries changed the lives of Guinness workers, transformed poverty in Dublin, and inspired other companies to understand that care for their employees is their most important work. It was the Guinness culture of faith and kindness and generosity that move men to seek out ways to serve their fellow men, to mend what the harshness of life had torn. There is no better symbol of this culture than the efforts that Guinness inspired in Dublin in 1900, when the horrors of overcrowding, starvation, and disease were decimating thousands. It was then that a young doctor, a board of wise and kind-hearted men, a hundred-year-old culture of benevolence, and one of the most searing crises in Ireland's history converged, and it became in time a triumph, a story men told their grandsons and executives repeated in boardrooms around the world. It was the moment when that noble Guinness culture spilled out of the brewery into the streets of a dying city. It was a time when Guinness de demonstrated the good that righteous wealth can do. End quote. Now, what in the world would make somebody write words like that about a brewery? It's all wrapped up in the story of Guinness and the family. See, Arthur Guinness, the original brewer of the famous beer, was not only a brewer and a businessman, 
Arthur was a believer, and he wanted to make the lives of the people in Dublin better because of his company being in the city. And he built that ethic into his company. And as the years went by, people in Dublin found themselves having better working conditions, better medical care, and better homes to live in because their bosses in the brewery were committed to doing them good. Now, I'm not going to tell you that everything in that company has always been noble and lovely. There's no business that has a reputation like that without problems along the way. But what I can say is if you do a little research on this organization or you read the book I read, you'll find that this particular business changed the lives of its workers for the good. And we can learn from this organization that when workers and bosses try to do each other good, good things happen for the company and for the people. Now, my point here is not to give you guys a TED talk about good management or to talk about any particular business. But our point is that we would see what the Word of God has to say to you and me about our lives today. And though the text that we read in Ephesians 6 here, though it says servants and masters, it will point us very clearly to how employees and employers work together living in a fallen world. So listen to me when I tell you that our text today applies to you. It applies to you if you're a boss. It applies to you if you're a worker. It applies to you if you're a soldier. It applies to you if you're a teacher or a student. This text tells you how to live for Jesus in the workplace, whatever that workplace looks like. So this morning, we're going to find three points Three points as we work through this final section of what is called the household codes of Ephesians 5.22 through 6.9. We're going to talk for a moment about the issue of slavery in the first century world because we don't want to misunderstand what's being talked about here. And then we will see how, even if we're not in the same position of the slaves and the masters of the first century, how do we live as workers or bosses today to the glory of God? So, point number one, and this is kind of a side point, if you will, but it's really important. It's just going to be understand slavery in the Bible. Understand slavery in the Bible. Look at the beginning of verse 5, which says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters. There is absolutely no good way for us to look at this passage in our modern world without pausing to have a conversation about the issue of slavery. When I talked with, I was talking with Harold and Mary uh, on Zoom after Sunday school today, and I said, at least there's nothing that could be taken as politically charged in today's text. Yeah, maybe something, right? But there's no way to talk about this without stopping for a second to talk about slavery. The, the, the word for servants in verse 5 is the Greek doulos, and it's a word that is, of course, it can be translated servant. Don't think your Bible's wrong if it has the word servant there, but that is the primary Greek word used for slave. Paul is making reference here to people that you and I might think of as domestic or household slaves in the city of Ephesus in the first century. 
And the difficult thing about reading the biblical commands regarding slaves is that you and I have a really tough time not reading our modern understanding of slavery back into what was happening in ancient Israel in the Old Testament or back into what we think of in Rome in the first century. Because you hear the word slave, and it's easy for us to think of 18th and 19th century America, the slave trade, the civil war. We think of racism, we think of kidnapping, we think of human brutality. But what was regulated in Scripture is most certainly not the same thing. In the 18th and 19th century in the United States and in Europe, Slaves were bought and sold as pieces of property. West African tri tribes would raid their neighboring tribes. They would kidnap people and bring them to the ships of slave traders. Sometimes the traders or the other groups would decide to go themselves into the African countries and kidnap people. And these slave traders would brutalize their slaves. They would carry them over the sea in the most inhumane of conditions, not caring if they died on the way. Many slaves did die in the journey, but many others survived to live in enforced servitude. Families were torn apart as men and women were sold to different masters. Some slaves were forced to breed like animals to provide their owners with even more human property. And this is evil. Now keep this in mind. Three things. I told you this in 1 Peter 3 as well, by the way, if you don't remember, or 1 Peter 2, if you don't remember it, but three things. American and European slavery, one, was the result of kidnapping. Two, was perpetual, meaning there was no end, there was no way out for the slave. And three, was excused by a dehumanizing racism. Slave owners and slave traders viewed slaves not as human beings, but as some sort of subhuman species. And they assumed that white Americans and Europeans were of a superior race and therefore did not have to treat dark-skinned people with respect as people created in the image of God. And all three of those things were evil. Now, when an atheist tries to use the Bible's use of slavery, discussion of slavery, whether it's in the Old Testament or the stock passages like this one in the New, when they try to use that to attack Christianity, they are refusing to see that there were some very clear differences in Scripture from the evils of the modern slave trade. For example, in the Old Testament, a Hebrew became the slave of another Hebrew would be released from his slavery at the end of six years of service. It was not a perpetual, hopeless, never-ending bondage. In Scripture, our, point, our third point from that, in Scripture, slavery was never based on somebody's skin color or the assumption that anybody was less than human. That was never present in the biblical picture. In fact, almost all of the Old Testament laws regarding slavery were, were laws that said that slaves must not be mistreated. And in contrast with American slavery, 
The Bible is clear that to kidnap a man, to sell him as a slave, is a crime punishable by death. That was absolutely clear in the book of Exodus. So yes, people in Old Testament days could become slaves in a variety of ways. They might sell themselves as slaves because they need to pay off a debt. They might voluntarily choose to remain lifelong servants in a home where they were happy. Some people from a neighboring nation might become, a, become slaves because their nations were conquered. But not one of those three things from the Old Testament is a one-to-one -one parallel with the evils of 19th century slavery. And it's not close. Now, the section we're studying for today, though, is not about the Old Testament and the Old Testament law. Those laws are not really in view right here because Paul is writing to Gentile Christians who were household slaves under the laws of the Roman Empire in the first century. One author that I read when studying this said that during the days of Jesus, one of every two persons who lived in the Roman Empire were slaves or had been slaves. In Rome... A person might become a slave to avoid poverty. A person might become a slave to, a, to learn a trade. Many owners of slaves in Rome treated their slaves very kindly, almost like they were family members. Slaves could be household servants. They could be workers in the fields. Slaves also might be doctors or teachers. And many masters in the first century would set their slaves free in their wills. Slaves generally had the opportunity to earn money and could eventually purchase their own freedom. And one article that I read said that most slaves earned their freedom by age 30. In fact, there was, there was a law that had to be passed in the Roman Empire in the first century because slaves were getting their freedom so quickly that people were having trouble, you know, having the service that they needed. And so the, the empire tried to crack down on that because people were getting their freedom very quickly. In Rome, a person might choose to be a slave for a season because they wanted to use their slavery, if you can imagine this, to take a step up in the society. Because you see, in that culture, if you became the household servant of a house of a higher class than yours, you might leave that servitude and actually have the connections to be at that next higher class. But I will say to you for sure it's true that in the Roman Empire, slavery could be brutal. Not every slave had a fair and just master. And Paul was clear in the New Testament that if a Christian slave can gain his freedom, they should do so. Now, here in a minute, we're going to move on and we're going to see what the Lord actually has to say to slaves and masters. But I want us to remember that slavery in the Scripture, the slavery that the Bible regulates or talks about, when it's talked about in the Bible, differs from American slavery in the 1800s in significant ways. The slavery that we're talking about was not from kidnapping, was not perpetual, and did not dehumanize anybody based on skin color. In Scripture, slaves were never to be treated as less than human beings. But I can't say to you that in Rome, that didn't mean that slaves might not have hard, unfair lives. One of the questions you might want to ask is, what is a near parallel for us today in what Paul's talking about in this section when he talks about slavery? And at first glance, you might say there's nothing quite like Roman household slavery in our culture. It's true. But there certainly are principles here 
that would apply to you living as a Christian in the workplace in general. You should be able to take the truth you learned from this passage and apply it to your job. No bosses in American jobs today have the kind of authority over your person as did Roman masters over their slaves. But many of us have worked in places where we had to submit to leaders. And many of us have worked under leaders that were difficult to serve. Have you ever worked under a leader who was difficult to serve? Yeah. Many people in our culture have been unfairly treated by bosses. And I would actually say to you that there are some jobs that match the picture of Roman household slavery even better than you might think. And the one I raised for you when I talked about this in 1 Peter still applies. Military service. Do you ever think about this? A soldier, an airman, a sailor, a marine, whatever. A soldier gives up many of his rights and freedoms to enter the armed services. You guys know that's true, right? Any soldiers want to amen that? So, amen, right? While serving, a soldier is under the direct command of superiors, and those superiors have more authority over a soldier than do many bosses in any workplace, right? And soldiers submit... The soldiers submit to that level of authority, giving up many basic freedoms that others take for granted in order to gain a better future for themselves and to serve their country faithfully, which we appreciate. But I say this though, for most people, I think the soldier thing applies really well, but for most people, the best way to see this in your life is to live as a Christian in the workplace. Maybe it applies to a Christian student under the authority of an instructor. You might have more freedoms than the servants had in Paul's letter. You might have a way out of your job if it gets bad. But many of the principles from this passage will carry over uh, from what we see in Ephesians to your job or to your school. So, let's go back to the passage here. Here's the question that a first century Christian should be asking. How in the world are Christians who are slaves supposed to behave? Is the church supposed to launch a big political campaign to end slavery throughout the Roman Empire? The same Paul who wrote the letter to the Ephesians wrote to us in Romans 13 that we are to submit to our governing authorities. And those governing authorities were not necessarily righteous folks. What will Paul say to Christian slaves? And how do we learn and apply this passage? How do we learn from and apply it? Let's look forward, servants and masters, and let's try to apply the word of God to our own lives. And you're going to, if you're living a normal life here, there are times you will be the servant under authority, And there are times in your life that you might get to be the master, the one in authority. But either way, it is your job to honor the Lord. Let's see how. Point number two, workers. Point number two, workers serve faithfully to the glory of God. Workers serve faithfully to the glory of God. Look at 
5 through 8. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bond servant or is free. Again, in the first century, in a city like Ephesus, it is logical to expect that many believers who were present hearing this letter read would be household slaves. That was part of the culture. And it's likely that when the letter to the Ephesian church was being carried, even from Paul to the people, it was being carried by Tychicus, and he was carrying with him on the same trip the letters to Colossians, to the church in Colossae, and a letter to a guy named Philemon. And who was Philemon? Philemon was a household owner, a wealthy man. And the letter to Philemon particularly addresses his relationship with Onesimus, a former household slave who, by the way, was with Tychicus carrying the letter. Can you imagine, by the way, being Onesimus and having to carry the letter back to your master you ran away from because you knew that the right thing to do was to make things right with your former master? What is the Christian who finds himself or herself under strong authority supposed to do? The command Paul gives is obey. What does that mean? Well, what do we tell the children it meant last week? Listen to and follow the directions of your boss. If you're a worker serving somebody in authority, it is your job to obey your boss. And all the same restrictions on obedience and submission that we've been saying all along, those still apply, right? When you're called in your life to submit, you are never called to submit to a command for you to sin. God is your highest authority, and you do not violate God's law so that you can submit to some other person. You don't submit to abuse, because if you submit to abuse, you are submitting to sin. But notice in verse 5, what does it say? Servants are to obey. Well, look at the words you tell me. What kind of masters are they supposed to obey? Obey your, what's that? Obey your earthly masters. That word earthly is a big deal. Even the most powerful boss who can be over you is only earthly. You don't obey your bosses in the same way that you obey the Lord God. Earthly bosses do have real authority over you, but that authority is limited under the authority of God. Now, as we also have said, when you cannot obey an order that your boss gives you because the order is unlawful, you still can have an attitude of humility. And you can express a desire that you would be given an instruction that you can follow so that you can again obey the order of your bosses. You can express in your demeanor toward your boss 
that you are absolutely willing to obey a command that does not violate the commands of God. And Christians, let me hear, you've got to hear this. In a world of social media ranting and grumpiness like I've never seen before in my life, Christians, you've got to see that even when you say, I cannot follow that instruction, you don't say that like a jerk. If we look at what Paul has said, by the way, about workers obeying their bosses, we're going to see four ways to obey. So if you're writing more notes down, you can write four ways to obey. How do you do it? You obey with respect, with honesty, to glorify Christ for eternal reward. We'll go over those, okay? Obey with respect. Verse 5 says, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling, as you likely know, are terms ascribed to how you respond to the Lord. And the idea here is that you would show genuine respect for authority. The word fear here is not trying to say to you to, to be scared in the way that you might run away from danger, right? Fear here is not the way that... Um, I think I once heard Jason Lekowitz talk about snakes with a word like this. That's, that's not what this word means. It's a word for respect. But the idea of showing fear, reverence to the, to the boss, if you will, it means that you understand that the one you fear is not one to be trifled with. We are to follow the instructions of our bosses with that kind of respect. You know, it's funny. Uh, my, my mom's in process of moving out this way. So the, coming here, it makes me think about home, and it makes me think about life and family. Mitzi and Abigail have been looking at, at old family photos over the last three days, which has been miserable for me because I get the dumbest text messages you could ever possibly imagine as they say, guess what I found a picture of? Yeah, that's what you want to hear, by the way, is your family members telling you, oh, I found some great old photos of you. Wait till I get them on Facebook. <laughs> All of you are forbidden to look at my wife's Facebook, by the way, for the next little bit. But... They did find a picture of me and my dog riding my bicycle together from my childhood. So watch for that one. It's, it's cute. But, you know, when I think about those old things, though, it makes me think about family. It makes me think about my dad. And, and I had a proper fear of my dad. I, when I was young, especially. As I got older, it got a little worse. But I, did that mean that I was scared of him? Did that mean I didn't want to see him or that I didn't want to be around him? Or, you know, if he came into a room, I wanted to run away? No. It meant that I knew this. I, I, you know, I, I might mess around. I might joke around with dad and play. But eventually, if dad was serious, I didn't, I knew not to mess with that. You know what I'm talking about? You're supposed to have that for your boss, too. You're supposed to have that kids for your parents, too. And we're supposed to have that in a giant form for the Lord. Now, stop and think. You're in the workplace. Y'all got jobs, right? Most of you? You're in the workplace. Can you tell the difference in a worker who treats the boss with respect and the one who doesn't? I think you can, can't you? Even if the person is obeying the boss's orders, can you tell the difference in the one who shows that the position of the boss matters and the one who doesn't? I think you can. 
And this is where we might remember that sometimes you show respect for an office even when you cannot personally respect the office holder. You know, in my lifetime, you guys can tell me if this is true for you too, there have been United States presidents that I believe were men of character, honorable men, and in my lifetime there have been presidents I believe to be corrupt and disreputable men. You guys agree with that so far? Okay. But if my family and I were to meet any of these men, the presidents I liked, the presidents I wasn't super fond of, I can assure you I would teach my children to show the same level of respect to those men. And why would I do that? Why would I teach my children to show respect to men I don't like? Because it's right to respect the office and to respect the authority, even when you cannot personally agree with the office holder, even if you might not be able to obey the commands of that office holder, you show respect. Think about it again. Romans 13, Paul says to respect, to honor, to, to honor the emperor, right? Who were the emperors when Paul was writing Romans? They weren't good guys. But, well, at least all the Roman emperors came about their job by righteous means, right? No. Some of them murdered. Some of them were awful, 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 evil human beings. If Paul said that you are to pray for those kind of people and treat them with respect, let me say to you, and I won't spend a ton of time on this, but let me say to you, if you don't like the outcome of the election, I understand. And whether you think it was even legal or not, that's, that's, do what you got to do to see to it that things are done as best we can. But when a person is in the office, when it's all said and done, whether it's the one you want or the one you don't want, you don't speak and act disrespectfully. We're not going to honor God by that. Does that make sense? You with me? You feel a little bit rebuked? Keep going. All right. Next. Verses 5 and 6. We are called to obey with honesty. With honesty. Paul writes, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Do you hear those phrases just piling up on each other right there? With a sincere heart, not by way of eye service, from the heart. What is that saying? It's saying that when you are called to obey, you obey for real. You don't just go through the motions. And I think that phrase there, not by way of eye service, is probably the most helpful for us here. Again, go back to work in your mind. Go back to school in your mind. Imagine that your leader gives you an order. And that person is in the room. They say, pick that up over there. And they're in the room watching you. You go pick it up, right? People love to obey when they're being watched. Here's the question. What do you do when that person's eyes are not on you? Do you stop obeying? Do you get lazy? Do you violate company policy? Do you ignore your teacher's expectations? If you only obey when somebody watches you, but you don't obey when they don't watch you, you're obeying by way of eye service, and God says in his word, that's not okay. 
Now, there could be many reasons that we might want to obey, right? Why should somebody obey? Well, maybe you want to obey because obedient employees have a better time at the workplace, right? Obedient folks tend to be able to avoid negative consequences. But here's the third thing here. Paul gives this as a motivation. He says you should obey for the glory of Christ. Verses 5 and 6, again, he says, we've seen Paul say, as you would Christ, as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Then verse 7 says, rendering service with a good will to, as to the Lord and not to man. That constant repetition shows us here, folks, God wants you and me to see that your obedience at work, your obedience to morally acceptable commands, that obedience is a thing you do, not just for the boss, but for the honor of Jesus. You worship the Lord when you obey authority over you, so long as the authority is not commanding you to disobey the Lord. So maybe, maybe you're a student, and you're told to do your homework. I wonder if you ever heard anybody tell you to do your homework. Yes, Yes, you have. But maybe you don't like your homework. Have you ever not liked your homework? He never likes his homework. I understand. I understand that. Do you guys understand that feeling too? Yeah. But here's the thing, guys. The Lord has placed you under the authority of your teacher, whether that is in a public school or at home. And if the thing your teacher asks you to do is not sin, you obey it. In fact, you do your best. Why? Because doing your best when you're called to do so is a way for you to show that you honor and obey Jesus. You glorify God when you work well. God made us for his glory. God shaped us so that God will satisfy our soul when we give him glory. So work to the glory of Christ no matter what the job is, and you're going to find joy in the Lord. Now the fourth thing here, in verse 8, one more way of thinking that will help us work to the glory of God says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. And this is the call to obey for eternal reward. Never let yourself forget that you, if you're a Christian, live for eternity. We are children of God and we go through this life with the opportunity to glorify the Lord. We go through this life with the opportunity to have great joy from day to day and year to year. But friends, in the end, this life, The 80 years or 70 years or 90 years you live, that's like a teeny drop of water in the ocean of eternity because God made you to live forever and you will live forever in the presence of the God who made you. And Paul says we should work with the understanding that God will reward every labor done in his name. God is going to bless the Christian salesman who serves his company well. God is going to bless the Christian security guard who seeks to protect the people who walk through his doors. God is going to bless the Christian factory worker who spends day after day pulling the same lever on the same machine. God will bless them, maybe not with money, maybe not with ease in this life, but with the eternal blessings of reward for honoring God. Now this might sound weird to the world around us, But we live for heaven, not for earth. 
We live for the forever in the new creation with Jesus, not for the broken and fallen world that we are in today. Now, we are absolutely supposed to do everything we can in the here and now to show that God is the king over this world too. But our focus, our hearts, our loves, our mindset has to be for the forever to come far more than it is for the here and now. And that's how Paul can call Christian workers, even Christian slaves, to obey for God's glory. Listen, working well could make you, give you a better life but it might not. But you obey your boss and you serve well for more than just today. You obey for the glory of God. You obey with faith that God will never, not ever, let God-honoring behavior go unrewarded. Y'all, God is good and his kingdom will come and his will is to be done and we want to be servants of our heavenly king above everything else. What about for bosses? We get one verse for bosses. Why? I don't know. My guess is because it was more likely for the people Paul wrote to to be a servant than a master. But the words for bosses here are powerful anyway. Last point. Bosses lead graciously to the glory of God. Lead graciously to the glory of God. Verse 9, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. One little sentence, guys, and Paul tells masters what they need to know. And honestly, if this thing's applied, if this verse is, when this verse really was applied, it did away with the system of slavery that was present in the first century. And words like these are the words that would do away with the evils of the slavery that would infect our world in later centuries too. Words like these move men like Arthur Guinness to seek to improve the lives of his workers around him, not to just use them up as other bosses did in his day. So first, if you are a boss, If you're ever in position to lead, if you're ever in position to be the authority, show the sincerity and the goodwill that God commands of workers. That's what Paul means by the call, do the same to them. God expects workers to be faithful. He expects workers to be respectful. Bosses are to do the same. Never let yourself view your workers. Never let yourself view somebody under your authority as less than you or less than human. Always treat people with the same respect you would wish to receive. Second, put away harshness and ungodly threats. Paul says, stop your threatening. He's not saying to a boss, by the way, you can't fire somebody for bad performance. He's not saying you can't threaten to fire somebody for a bad attitude or bad performance. But what he's saying is there's no room for you to make harsh threats. There's no room for you to use your power to frighten somebody or to try to get your way just because you want to feel strong. No bullying. I've known some bosses that needed that verse really clearly. Third, remember that you have a master in heaven who sees you. 
Paul says, Masters should treat workers well, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Just because you get to be the boss someday doesn't mean that you're not also under authority because God is in heaven. He is Lord. He sees everything you do and you answer to him in a similar way to how you require workers to answer to you. Do not dare mistreat your workers and let, your, let you think that you're not going to be seen by somebody in authority. And then like the council to workers here, bosses should set their minds on eternity too. God's in heaven. There is no partiality with him. God's not impressed with your wealth. How many of you are glad that God does not, is not either impressed by you or disappointed in you based on your wealth? Right? God is not impressed with your wealth. He's not impressed with your rank or your job title or your power. God is your judge. He will reward that which honors him. And as we said to workers, we live for eternity and your hope is not in your job or your power or your money. It's in Jesus Christ and the forever to come. Lead your workers in such a way that you'll be happy to give account to Christ for how you did it. You know, in the end, we see that all the workers and all the bosses have the opportunity to glorify God. Workers who obey faithfully look like Jesus. He obeyed authorities over him. When he was in, on earth, he always obeyed righteous authority. And bosses who lead well, with grace and with firmness, they look like the Heavenly Father. But unfaithful following, evil-hearted leadership, that dishonors God. It's that simple. And here's where I think many of us ought to be glad for the grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus died to pay the price for our sins, including when we followed poorly, and including when we've led poorly. So may we run to Jesus, confess our sins, and repent. Seek the grace God freely gives in Christ. May we trust that because Jesus rose from the grave, we have eternity to live before the Lord. And may we find life in Christ and let that life call us to lead and to follow for his glory. Listen to me, friends. If you don't have the forgiveness of Jesus, you need it. Boss or servant, mostly faithful or mostly unfaithful, you're not good enough to make your way to heaven on your own. You must have the blood of the Savior shed for you to be forgiven. I urge you, cry out to Jesus. Believe in him. Turn from sin and ask him to save your soul. Let's pray together, friends. Father, as we are here, we know, Lord, that we have never been perfect masters, perfect servants. But we know this, Lord. We know that you give us the opportunity to serve you. I pray that we'll serve you faithfully in all that we do. God, forgive us our sin, I pray. Help people who don't know you come to know you. 
and make us faithful that we might best honor you. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.